brand recognition and awareness is the key driving force towards long-term and sustainable success for any small business. And using digital marketing as a primary tool to connect with a customer base is gaining steam and improving to be an effective and a noteworthy tool when uh, conducting cold outreach and pr promoting your business to the masses. According to my friends over at Statista, an average of $534 is spent on digital ads for any small business per month in order to get their name out there and more eyes on the services that they offer. And on average, it is estimated that most small businesses spend approximately 8% of their entire budget on digital marketing or other forms of marketing in order to get their name out there to the public. Aziz Musa is an innovative leader in the field of digital marketing whose journey in the space can best be described as both fascinating and educational. As the youngest public company CEO in the UK, he's already made significant strides towards making a dent of impact in the field of digital marketing. His significant turning point in business came in 2017 during the war in Sudan when he founded Crust Digital. Among political unrest, Aziz stayed focused on his vision of building a thriving digital economy among mounting unrest in the Middle East. He strategically relocated to Egypt, which ensured his personal safety and the idea of his continuing thriving business. Today, it stands as one of North Africa's premier digital agencies. And Musa, join me this week to talk everything relating to digital marketing, his incredibly inspiring journey of survival, perseverance, and so much more, and how other small business leaders can take a page of inclusive leadership from his playbook. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. to welcome you uh, to the program, my friend. And I'm super excited to learn about your uh, role and life and business, my friend. Great to see you this afternoon. And thank you so very much for being here. It's absolutely my pleasure. Absolutely. So, my friend, tell me, I, I'm generally 
is because they tell me that uh, your uh, life's work is sort of being in digital marketing and talking about uh, both business resilience and innovation, my friend. So how do those two things sort of intersect uh, with your story and time in business? Tell me all about it. I'm fascinated. Yeah, I think that um, resilience is probably one of the most underrated skills of of entrepreneurs and the people in 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 life. I think we've gotten so mollycoddled and so comfortable nowadays that people have kind of almost forgotten how to be resilient. They get so flaky over the smallest things. They they lose confidence and lose their sort of internal strength and and willingness to push forward. And uh, I think I've just been fortunate enough to be to have found myself in difficult positions, but also to be of the type of person who wants to test themselves. And, uh, and, and yeah, like, I think that's the key to, to developing resilience, particularly in business, right? Business is tough. It's not, it's not like it was, you know, 20 years ago. Everything is competition. Everything is tough. There are challenges everywhere. The markets are fluctuating all the time. And, and more often than not, it's those who can, sort of drive through those challenges that that find themselves being successful at the other end. So I've always tried to sort of focus on that. And that's helped me a lot through my career. It helped me probably most last year because I was living in, uh, in the Sudan in Africa um, and I'd built a social enterprise there, like in digital marketing, training people in digital marketing, sort of, I was fortunate enough to be able to sort of train 4,000 youth for free of charge um, over the time that I was there and help them build multiple businesses. And then uh, a, uh, you know, a war broke out on the 14th of, um, on the 15th, sorry, of April last year. And it happened right in front of our offices, like right there in front of where we lived. Uh, and so that was an incredible challenge, you know, and a really difficult moment that we kind of had to get through. Uh, but I think all of the experience that I've had in life allowed us to to navigate those choppy waters and 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 find our way our, our way up to Egypt and and carry on our business as we had. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm curious to uh, get your thoughts on innovation as a whole because you know, innovation and have, having to constantly reinvent yourself is a normal part of business. So how do you look at effective business innovation? Yeah, this is a topic that's really close to my heart, Kevin. So thank, thanks for asking about it. Uh, when I did my, um, my MBA, my master's, uh, I chose to do my final dissertation on innovation and businesses. And, and I spent a lot of time in Google uh, at the time, you know, um, uh, in Google and in Facebook and also in startups, really exploring how they continue to innovate. Um, and I think that there are lots of different models, but there are some sort of key rules that everyone should apply to themselves in life and in business. The first one is to be open to ideas from any industry. Uh, most of the best innovations in their given industry actually exist as a standard template in other industries. So taking the time to really, you know, talk to people from other industries, do things like this where you get to talk to people from around the world, um, learn about how under other industries are solving their problems is the first step. And, and they call that um, cross-border, sort of uh, cross-market innovation. The second step is um, being open to ideas from other people who 
who don't necessarily have your experience. And this is one of the things that I found most valuable is that I'd learn most of the new te uh, techniques that we're going to apply in our business come from the new people who have just started, right? So in the first six months, they've come from other companies or they've used other technologies. And we're always looking to improve either efficiency or grow our client base or whatever it is. And we use their sort of historical knowledge to inform different things that we can do. I think a lot of people think that innovation is purely around the act of sitting down and creating or, or purely around pro, you know problem solving at a mass scale. But innovation can happen at a really, really small scale, right? So as I sort of sit down, look down to my right, I've got my list of tasks for, for the day. You know, whenever I'm doing a task, I'm always thinking to myself, can that be automated? Is there, a way, is there someone somewhere in the world who's doing this task in an automatic fashion that I can learn from? So it can be as small as just like at a task level, and it can be as big as a strategic level. Um, what I found uh, most common, though, in, in the companies that I visited whilst doing my, my dissertation is that those who innovate fastest and most effectively dedicate time to innovation. Um, and they literally dedicate a portion of their employees' time in the week or in the month to ideating around entirely new ideas. And they won't give it as free time. They'll give them problems to solve, and then they'll sit and discuss how different individuals have solved those problems. And the idea of sitting there and discussing those those ideas and the, the, the solutions that they've come up with uh, tend to spawn new ideas. And so they're constantly um, putting innovation uh, at the heart of their business by dedicating time and resources to that activity. Yeah, and, you know, there's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because, you know, I, my friend, was born with uh, cerebral palsy. So, uh, the type of cerebral palsy that I have means that I don't have enough oxygen uh, to walk in my legs uh, from a normal perspective. So one of the things that I uh, do is, as a professional speaker, I go around and talk to organizations about uh, the positive benefits of hiring uh, people with disabilities and the competitive advantage that it provides the businesses. So I'm wondering your thoughts on uh, your thoughts on what it means to really diversify a workforce and how uh, individual disabilities can really be an asset in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. It's another great question. So I um, was fortunate enough to have a mentor uh, who was a well-known CEO in the UK. And it was probably 15 years ago now that I had this mentor. And I spoke with him um, every couple of weeks. And there was one of uh, the lessons that he gave me. One of the things that he used to say is, is, is as a leader, your job is to surround yourself with the best brains that you can afford. And here's something as easy that you need to know about brains. Brains are just organic matter. They, are, they don't have gender, they don't have a race, they don't have a religion, and they don't really care if the body that they sit in works or otherwise, they're just brains. And therefore, hire the best brains that are around you. And so I think that ultimately, you know, assuming that in, in my world, 
physical disabilities haven't they're never really a barrier to um, to success in our industry because in the digital space, uh, it, you know, it, it's mostly office space, it's mostly desk space, and so um, it's really about hiring the brains and 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 um, giving those brains the opportunity to excel in in the workforce. So that's always been my philosophy. But I think you know, the last company in the UK that I worked at, the, there are other very specific advantages. So you know, Kevin, you'll have you'll have lived through your life um, and you will have solved problems that most of us will never experience, right? And so in the act of solving those problems, whatever those problems may have been, it could be something um, that's relatively to, uh, you know, mundane or it could be something that's, that's very significant. But in solving those problems, you've almost accessed a different part of your brain to other people. And the knowledge that resides within you can't be replicated anywhere else. So the advantages of not seeing disability are not just for the individual, but for the organization as a whole. You bring entirely new perspectives onto potential problems that may exist in the workforce. And I'm curious, have you, uh, have you experienced that where you've entered into like a, an organization and, and spotted things that actually for you are quite easy to resolve because you've, you've, you've experienced something similar in your lifetime? Yeah, so when I whenever I go into businesses, one of the first things I look for is what what are their level of education uh, and how can I solve their education gap? So, uh, for example, if you want someone to do uh, repetitive repetitive tasks, but they have uh, trouble sitting at a desk. Uh, for long periods of time. One of the things that we tell employers that they can do is make sure that um, you put people in leadership positions that have been through this lived experience. So if you're um, someone who needs to get up and move around from, uh, from using myself as an example, and, you know, if I sit for longer periods of time, my muscles contract back faster. So I work from, from between uh, 30 to 45 minutes, and then I take a break, and then, then I move around, and then I go back uh, and, and, and finish what I have to do. So it's, when we talk about working with employers, it starts with the education piece for me, because once I know... Uh, what their knowledge level is, it makes it easier for them and for myself to work together. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so that is knowledge that that you are sort of privy to, but that everybody will benefit from. So I think that, like, even even just talking to you, like, I, you know, there are certain things you were saying that, that I hadn't considered before. And isn't, I think that that is sort of a leader's job, right, is to diversify the opinions that exist and the knowledge base that exists around the table so that we can consider, like, uh, all opportunities that, that exist within the workforce. So, yeah, that, the work you're doing is, 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 is really powerful. Well, I appreciate that, and I'll give you one more example. You know, when I talk to employers, I tell them to look at inclusion as, in the workplace anyway, as a Thanksgiving Day table, and you pull out a chair of inclusion uh, at the 
Thanksgiving Day table because whenever we eat Thanksgiving or have Thanksgiving dinner, uh, we, we talk about what we're thankful for. So if we pull out a chair at the table of inclusion, then everyone has a chance to be heard. So I just wanted to share that analogy with you, and I hope it helps moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great analogy. And and again, like I think that uh, aside from everyone being heard, I just think that there are experiences that everybody can learn from and, 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 and gain insight from. So, yeah, that's a really helpful analogy. Yeah, well, it leads to my next question because, you know, we talked about the, the power of listening. And I think as a leader, one of the best things you can do is to be an effective listener. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. Two ears, one mouth. That's the, that should be the ratio of working. <laughs> well, that, uh, that's, I, I think uh, Judge Judy coined that term. You were given uh, two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? Exactly right, 100%. Yeah, and Aziz, tell me, what do you think is the definition of a business trailblazer? What does that mean to you? Listen, I think that um, a business trailblazer is someone who's uh, forged a new path that previously didn't exist or only existed to to an extent. And it look, it, 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 it's, it's different across different markets and industries. I think, for example, in the U.S., um, it's really challenging to be a business trailblazer, right? Because you're waiting for you're waiting for new technologies, or you're inventing new technologies in order to carve out new niches and new opportunities that never previously existed. Whereas in in places like Africa, um, being a, a trailblazer is actually much much easier. Uh, taking existing technologies, but opening up markets that have never had access to those technologies, and opening therefore business opportunities, growth opportunities, revenue opportunities that didn't previously exist, uh, equally counts as sort of opening opening up those markets. There are lots of terms like that, business trailblazer, and things like that. And I think that um, to to a large extent, um, what what it really refers to is opening up things that didn't previously exist yes for your benefit but for the benefit more importantly of the people behind you who can who can take advantage of that yeah absolutely and i know that you've had quite the journey in the corporate world of startups i know you were one of the youngest founders for a public company and the ceo of an innovative company called cross digital my friend and Talk to me about uh, sort of uh, fueling your fire as a young entrepreneur and uh, your journey specific, uh, specifically in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Well, what, what fuels my fire is to make an impact, right? So I, I feel happiest when I'm doing something with purpose. And I was, as you, as you mentioned, I was like the, I was the youngest public company CEO in the, in the UK for a time, and it was a listed company. And it was a beautiful company, a great team, and I really enjoyed it. But I really felt like the work that I was doing was personally meaningless. Uh, it was it was work. It was work to, to, to improve shareholder value and, and all of those nice 
things, but I really didn't feel like I was making an impact on people's lives in any meaningful or positive way. And that's why when I set up Kush Digital sort of seven years ago, the heart of my objective was to to help impact people's lives in a positive way. And I, I chose to do that through training, through development, through um, through opening up and investing in entrepreneurs uh, and using Kush Digital, a, a digital marketing agency, as as the vehicle to do that, and and I think that's what that's what kind of as you put it fuels my fire. It's what gets me up in the morning. Is is knowing that if I go in today, I'm going to have a positive impact on someone's life. I'm going to spend time with people who are going to value and learn from you know from my experience, um, and who are going to develop themselves individually. And that kind of feeds into our clients too, right? So when we build that that culture of um, making an impact, then then our, our teams are always focused on the same thing, making an impact on our clients too. And, that, and then it becomes like a virtuous cycle of positive impact. That is where I find myself most at home. I find myself most, listen, I can sleep well at night. You know, I'll go home tonight and I'll I'll get to bed and I'll be like, yeah, okay, I did good today. I did a lot of good stuff today. And and that I think is missing from a lot of organizations. I, I always use this term, a muck job, like a, a Big Mac, right? People have got lots of muck jobs, yeah. And and they're important, you know, it's important to 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 do to do to have an income. But if you can have an in- income and make a difference, it's just like multiples more powerful. Or at least I find that to be the case anyway. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, life is all about paying it forward, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that that's correct to an extent. In that, you know, it's partly about paying it forward, but it's partly about paying it back too, right? So I've been fortunate enough to to have, you know, some great mentors, to work for some great companies, to learn a lot from different industries and it would be almost wrong of me to to like you know disappear with that knowledge down a hole i'd rather spend the time sharing that knowledge across across the people that work with me yeah absolutely and you know i, I also wanted to talk to you about using technology as uh, an advantage point in business versus uh, really valuing the human uh, capital of, uh, of the worker. So how do you think we can strike a balance between utilizing technology but also not replacing the, uh, the human worker as well? Uh, that's such a topical point, right? Because as artificial intelligence has... has uh, really exploded over the last nine months and as it will over the next ten, uh, two years, I think that this question is becoming increasingly pertinent, right? Increasingly important. So let me tell you what we did as, a, as an organization because I think it's probably um, a, a good example of how to so- how to square that circle, how to solve both of those problems at the same time. As an agency, we were really, really early adopters in uh, AI. So we started using AI tools from the beginning of last year, uh, actually toward the end of, of 2022. So, you know, we were super early in adopting um, uh, adopting AI technologies. And what we found was that the technologies that exist today 
can massively increase the efficiency of every individual person. So there are two ways to look at that, right? The first way to look at that is, okay, you employ 100 people, you can make them 10 times more effective with the use of technology, so we only now need 90 people. And I'm sure there are some business owners who look at it that way. I looked at it um, in an entirely different way. I looked at it from the opposite perspective. Okay, so we've got 100 people and we can now do the work of 1,000 people thanks to AI. So what we ended up doing is really focusing on growth, getting a lot of new clients and then working with AI to improve our efficiency and and actually paying, paying people significantly more as well because we were able to make so much more money through the use of um, artificial intelligence. And I think that that is the, the most um, effective and ethical approach. Now, the, the, the AIs that will come, the advances in technology that are going to come over the next 12 months will make certain industries obsolete. I think that the role of a graphic designer, for example, and there are hundreds of millions of graphic designers all around the world, I think that that role will, will become if not obsolete, entirely different to what it is now. And so, you know, we have a whole team of graphic designers and we're not sitting there waiting for that to happen. What we're doing is we're reskilling them now. We're reskilling them in, in SEO. We're reskilling them in paid advertising and in social media marketing and in lead generation, knowing that in a year's time, their role will either be fundamentally different or won't exist. And then they can easily transition into another role. And I think that organizations that take that view and prepare for those things now um, will have a you know significantly more loyal workforce, but also will be solving their problems before before those problems even come to fruition, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I know one of your passions is, is helping to lead businesses through adversity and really setting them up for I think I think preparation is is the key to sort of navigating um, choppy waters, to navigating difficult times, and flexibility. And those two things go hand in hand. So, um, what I've seen in a lot of organisations that I've that I've mentored is this fixed and rigid idea of what they are. And the problem with that is that if a new technology comes along or a market shift happens, they are basically stuck in this paradigm of what they believe themselves to be. And so, you know, what I, always, what I do within my own organizations and what we do at Kush Digital is we always think about the next step. Okay, what's the next thing that could happen? Um, be that economic, be it in sort of climate change, be it in every, anything. What's the next thing that could happen? And if it happened, how would we react to it? And we play games like this. In fact, I just came out of one of those now where we were just, we just hypothesized, okay, if this happened, what would we do? And so that process, if you formalize that process and then create plans for different scenarios, you find yourself so much better prepared than other organizations. And I think that's that's one of the key opportunities that many companies miss is that I think um, it was Bill Gates who said, he was asked how Microsoft was able to grow so so rapidly and become so dominant in the technology space or in the software space. And he said, Whenever there was an upcoming downturn, we just made sure we survived. And if you think about it, a market, you can grow 
in terms of market share, you can grow two ways. You can um, take market share from other companies and continue to, or you can you can grow through acquiring new customers. Well, if there's a downturn and you survive, but everyone else around you doesn't, then de facto your market share increases. And that's down to being prepared and being willing to take those difficult decisions when those times come so that you can come out the other end stronger than than when you entered. So yeah, preparation, not being rigid about your own perception of yourself as an organization uh, and being flexible. I think they're the two most important things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also curious to ask you about the sales process and lead generation, you know. I'll use myself as an example. So every morning that I wake up, I am sort of obsessed with lead generation and the sales process is a, a motivational speaker who, who talks to organizations about inclusion and building an inclusive workforce, as I shared earlier. But I, I'm curious from a tactical business standpoint, how do you think the, the sales process and lead generation can be interconnected and to be improved, to be more efficient as well? Yeah, so our approach to lead generation has always been around just offering like extraordinary amounts of value for free. That's like what we do. So we write loads of white papers. We do uh, a podcast. We um, write white papers for individual companies, and we just distribute that content for free. And and the reason we do that is because we find that leads that come to us just have such a. It's not about their propensity to close. It's not about whether they're likely to close as customers or not, or not because outbound and inbound tend to have a reasonably similar uh, conversion rate once you get past the prospecting stage. Um, but it's about their longevity as a client and having that long-term relationship. And a client that comes to you because they have downloaded one of your white papers and gained value from that has already built in a level of trust in your business that kind of buys you some time in order to show the impacts that you can have on them. And so that's really, I think, one of the, the key ways that we approach it is that we we tend to do a, probably a similar thing to what, what you're doing, you know, creating this content you're doing essentially for free, you're distributing it for free, and people get value from it. And if they do get value from it, they'll reach out to you. And the same is is true of, of me, right? So people who listen to your podcast and and are thinking at the time, oh, maybe we could we could use um, that kind of approach in our digital marketing, they'll reach out to me. So that I think that approach is 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 much more valuable than just cold outreach. That said, I understand a lot of organizations, you know, um, have to drive sort of cold outreach because they're brand new into a market or they have incredibly high growth targets or whatever it is. But because our objective as a business is to make a positive impact on people's lives, and it, you know, that doesn't mean our objective is to grow financially. That isn't our primary, that isn't, the number one thing that drives us. Um, we grow financially only so we can continue to have a positive impact. And so it's not so critical for us to go out and acquire customers. We can we can deal with like a slow inflow of customers through inbound um, because, yeah, our, our, just our organization is designed that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to also ask you about the prospect of, Business creativity, 
creativity and how the digital landscape of that space has become easier. So how do you think people can use business creativity to also uh, affect them for, in the digital world as well? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think that creativity in, in our space in particular has become, as you said, significantly easier, but more accessible to more people, right? So uh, essentially, if you think back to, I'm not sure how old you are, Kevin. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so uh, it's funny that you, you should ask. So last Monday was actually my 35th birthday, so I just turned 35. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank um, you. So you will remember a time before Canva, right? And mm -hmm. if you wanted to have like a graphic design done, you needed a graphic designer who had Photoshop and and then tools like Canva democratized that whole creative process. I mean, I'm not in any way comparing a true graphic designer to someone who uses Canva because I use Canva all the time and I'm frankly awful at it. You either have you either have that creative ability or you don't and we've got a whole team of people who do. But the ability, the fact that it is democratized and that everyone has access to it is is really, really valuable. And I think that that process will continue, that democratization. So now you've got Dali, you've got Midjourney, and you've got a whole plethora of tools that are coming out and evolving all the time using AI, which will essentially allow anyone who has a voice to, to speak to create um, to create and design incredibly beautiful content. And it's nascent at the moment. It's like, it's in its early phases right now, I would say. It's nowhere near um, it's nowhere near as, as competent as a real human being, but it will get better over time. And so I think that um, creativity in a business context has become sort of almost spread to the point where we're, we're reaching like we're, we're reaching the the point of pre-email you know before emails came out we all sent letters and we spent time on the phone then email came out and then everyone could communicate basically instantly so the the issue of communication essentially disappeared over overnight um so the issue of design creativity i think will disappear overnight but then that will create a new frontier of what creativity is and there i think is where all the excitement exists you know where can businesses really um really push the needle in terms of creating new ideas new business opportunities uh using technology or, or even without technology over time though and i've said this before i, I honestly believe that the advent artificial intelligence in the span of time will lead conversations like this between two human beings to be way more important than they are right now. And I think that we will crave human connection uh, in a way that we've probably as, as a species never craved human connection before. And I think that over time, we will end up valuing face-to-face -face or even digital interactions like this way more than we currently do. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to also talk to you about leadership and mindset and creating strategies that can also translate to an elite mindset. So what are your thoughts between uh, leadership and mind mindset and how we can craft those two things effectively? Yeah, I think in in leaders 
I'm still not sure whether leaders are made or born. I'm 43 years old, and I think I've had this question for as long as I can remember. Are you born a leader, or can you be a leader? And, I, I, and I'm still not sure. I think probably some people are born, but I still definitely have seen people who are exceptional leaders who, who never showed that propensity to be to, toward leadership earlier in their years. So there's definitely an element of of um, of it being built within us. And that part that's built, I think, is mindset. It is a willingness to just keep moving forward, a willingness to stay calm under relentless pressure. And more importantly than anything else, a desire to create a safe environment for people to work, express their views without fear of uh, punishment, chastisement, or any negative consequences. True leadership, I think, in a business context is, is really about creating an environment where people can be the very best that they can be. Knowing that not everybody's best is the same. There are different people who are exceptional in certain areas. But if you create an environment where everyone everyone can express themselves and be the best that they can be in, in a really safe space, I think you've done your job as a leader. And I think that comes down to being really comfortable with yourself personally as an individual being having great self-awareness being comfortable with yourself uh, being accepting of everyone's uh, points of view uh, having no kind of biases or, or heuristics that negative heuristics in your mind um, and and making sure that everyone's got a super clear understanding of what the vision is for the organization and that those things are easy to say it's easy to say be resilient you know those words are easy to say they pop out of your mouth nice and easily but actually it can, in times of challenge that's really hard to not lose your temper to not lose your mind to stay really calm to a, a to exude calmness under pressure, I think is a really powerful trait. And I don't necessarily think that that is a born trait. I think that's something that people learn through experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about your experience in product management and really uh, being nimble within the market, I'm curious uh, if you could talk for a moment about the importance of being a nimble and responsible Most certainly is. And I think that there's a there's there's a real challenge nowadays about because there's a balance between being nimble and then being impetuous, where you know you've got to be able to there are so many opportunities in front of everyone. Every organization has got 50 opportunities in front of them. And so choosing the right one and not half doing all 50 is is really the key. And I think that Part of that comes down to experience. Part of it, though, is just down to research, really taking the time to understand opportunities and knowing that choosing to not do something is often more valuable than choosing to do something. So I think, you know, um, I remember working at, at, at Photobox. We always had people who had uh, great ideas, and there were lots of them. There were hundreds of great ideas in front of us. Um, but, but my job as a leader was not only to select the ideas that we were going to execute based on the data, but also to execute them really, really quickly so that we could understand if, in fact, there was an opportunity there or not. And, and that's 
really, I think at Photobox, the years that I was there, that's where I really honed that skill of being able to spot opportunities um, and, 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 and being able to execute them quickly so that we could understand if it was worth further investment or not. Yeah, and you know, I'm going to combine one of my last two questions together because they're sort of interconnected. I, I, I'm curious to ask you about, you know, um, trends in digital marketing. And what, what do you see as the forward-thinking vision for the industry moving forward? And how do you think it can help us set, uh, sell, sell a project more I think that there's two futures for the digital marketing industry. There's the medium term, which I kind of define as the next three years, and then there's long term. In the medium term, what we're going to see is extreme levels of personalization, right? So right now, as a digital marketer, I can target based on behavioral demographics, yeah? So if you're on Facebook and you are um, a CEO or a, a founder of an organization and you live in, uh, let's say, Nevada, I could target you based on those variables and your age and the things that you like. But ultimately, I'm targeting a, a range of people uh, with a creative, a single creative. I think the next big evolution, which is only just around the corner, is for me to be able to target you personally. So you, Kevin, will see adverts on Facebook or on Instagram, which will be directed at you directly through the through the power of AI and and, and programmatic learning. So I think that in the sh in that the next three years, what we're going to see is such extreme levels of personalization that it will almost become meaningless. And that will lead to the second evolution. So what I mean by it will almost become meaningless is that when you're bombarded with advertising, you tend not to see the advertising. However personalized those ads are, they tend to sort of disappear. They, they fade from your site. And so I think what that will lead to is the second era of digital marketing, which is anti-digital marketing. I honestly believe that we're in an industry which will evolve to the point where what we do is actually connect people with people, real people, real conversations, real face-to-face. -face. This is why this podcast of yours and the thousands of other podcasts that exist in the world are so important. Because actually, I think that in the next sort of five to eight years, uh, real human interaction is going to be the truest form of marketing. And everything else will be the noise that fades into the background. Yeah, absolutely. And as is my final question for you, today is how I end all of my podcasts, my friend, and that's by asking you about your own personal and professional legacy, how you want your legacy to be defined. I would like to be remembered. Um, and I think that's it. <laughs> I think I'd just like to be remembered. Uh, no, I think I'd like to be remembered as someone who uh, made a positive impact on people's lives. Now, there's some people who want um, to do that to millions scale, that would be great. But frankly, if I, I leave a legacy of, you know, 10,000 people who were positively impacted in their lives and their careers through the work that I did, then that is more than enough for me. Yeah, absolutely. And my friend, I just had a personal curiosity. What do you think is the key to international business success? Because I know that you have quite a hand in that, my friend. So what do you think is the key to international business success? The rules of human behavior 
apply across the world. The only thing that changes is either language or culture uh, or both. And I think that, that success internationally really depends on you taking the time to learn the language if necessary, or, uh, but more importantly, learn the culture and work within the norms of any new society. And I've experienced this a lot in my career, um, both across Europe, you know, even, even though we talk about Europe as like one thing, it really isn't. France is entirely different to Germany, is entirely different to the Netherlands. Um, and then across the world too. And every country has things that are normal, behaviors, interactions, ways of speaking, ways even of asking questions, which are normal to that country. And it's really important to be successful internationally, to understand those microcultural traits and work within that, within the confines of, of what is normal in that space. I think that's why a lot of um, uh, a lot of companies that I've seen in the past, particularly US-based com companies that move into Europe, they often struggle with the workforce because the, the just the, purely the way of working is so different uh, and the way of interacting with employees and valuing employees is so different in Europe than it is to the US. But that applies everywhere. Even where I am now, I'm in Egypt right now, is completely different to the country that I was in prior to Egypt. And so, yeah, taking the time to really understand those cultural nuances and working within the confines of that cultural um, of that cultural tapestry is is probably the highest value thing you can do absolutely it's probably telling if people want to get connected with you what's the best way they can do that uh, the easiest way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Just search Aziz Musa, or you can uh, you can email me aziz at kush digital. That's c u a c u s h dot digital. Fantastic. Well, Aziz, I really want to thank you for being a, a transformational leader in the uh, space of digital marketing, my friend. Your work in the space and time on my behalf is most appreciated this afternoon, and I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you too, Kevin. Uh, I really enjoyed this this discussion. Thanks for all the great work that you do.